0: Section 17 of The Notebooks of Samuel Butler. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Rebecca Nance. The Notebooks of Samuel Butler, edited by Henry Festing Jones. Section 17 Unprofessional Sermons. Righteousness according to mr matthew arnold as we find the highest traditions of grace beauty and the heroic virtues among the greeks and romans so we derive our highest ideal of righteousness from jewish sources righteousness was to the jew what strength and beauty were to the greek or fortitude to the roman this sounds well but can we think that the jews taken as a nation were really more righteous than the greeks and romans could they indeed be so if they were less strong graceful and enduring in some respects they may have been every nation has its strong points but surely there has been a nearly unanimous verdict for many generations that the typical greek or roman is a higher nobler person than the typical jew and this referring not to the modern jew who may perhaps be held to have been injured by centuries of oppression but to the Hebrew of the time of the old prophets, and of the most prosperous eras in the history of the nation. If three men could be set before us as the most perfect Greek, Roman, and Jew respectively, and if we could choose which we would have our only son most resemble, is it not likely we should find ourselves preferring the Greek or Roman to the Jew? And does not this involve that we hold the two former to be the more righteous in a broad sense of the word? i dare not say that we owe no benefits to the jewish nation i do not feel sure whether we do or do not but i can see no good thing that i can point to as a notoriously hebrew contribution to our moral and intellectual well-being as i can point to our law and say that it is roman or to our fine arts and say that they are based on what the greeks and italians taught us on the contrary if asked what feature of post-christian life we had derived most distinctly from hebrew sources i should say at once intolerance the desire to dogmatize about matters whereon the greek and roman held certainty to be at once unimportant and unattainable this with all its train of bloodshed and family disunion is chargeable to the jewish rather than to any other account there is yet another vice which occurs readily to any one who reckons up the characteristics which we derive mainly from the Jews. It is one that we call, after a Jewish sect, Pharisaism. I do not mean to say that no Greek or Roman was ever a sanctimonious hypocrite. Still, sanctimoniousness does not readily enter into our notions of Greeks and Romans, and it does so enter into our notions of the old Hebrews. Of course, we are all of us sanctimonious sometimes. Horace himself is so when he talks about orum repertum et sic melius situm, and as for Virgil, he was a prig, pure and simple. Still, on the whole, sanctimoniousness was not a Greek and Roman vice, and it was a Hebrew one. True, they stone their prophets freely, but these are not the Hebrews to whom Mr. Arnold is referring. They are the ones whom it is the custom to leave out of sight and out of mind as far as possible so that they should hardly count as hebrews at all and none of our characteristics should be ascribed to them taking their literature i cannot see that it deserves the praises that have been lavished upon it the song of solomon and the book of esther are the most interesting in the old testament but these are the very ones that make the smallest pretensions to holiness and even these are neither of them of very transcendent merit. They would stand no chance of being accepted by Messrs. Cassell and Company, or by any biblical publisher of the present day. chatto and Windus might take the Song of Solomon, but with this exception I doubt if there is a publisher in London who would give a guinea for the pair. Ecclesiastes contains some fine things, but it is strongly tinged with pessimism, cynicism, and affectation. Some of the proverbs are good, but not many of them are in common use. Job contains some fine passages, and so do some of the Psalms, but the Psalms generally are poor, and for the most part querulous, spiteful, and introspective into the bargain. Moody would not take thirteen copies of the lot if they were to appear now for the first time, unless indeed their royal authorship were to arouse an adventitious interest in them, or unless the author were a rich man who played his cards judiciously with the reviewers as for the prophets we know what appears to have been the opinion formed concerning them by those who should have been best acquainted with them i am no judge as to the merits of the controversy between them and their fellow countrymen but i have read their works and am of opinion that they will not hold their own against such masterpieces of modern literature as we will say the pilgrim's progress robinson crusoe gulliver's travels or tom jones whether there be prophecies exclaims the apostle they shall fail on the whole i should say that isaiah and jeremiah must be held to have failed i would join issue with mr matthew arnold on yet another point i understand him to imply that righteousness should be a man's highest aim in life i do not like setting up righteousness nor yet anything else as the highest aim in life a man should have any number of little aims about which he should be conscious and for which he should have names but he should have neither name for nor consciousness concerning the main aim of his life whatever we do we must try and do it rightly this is obvious but righteousness implies something much more than this it conveys to our minds not only the desire to get whatever we have taken in hand as nearly right as possible but also the general reference of our lives to the supposed will of an unseen but supreme power Granted that there is such a power, and granted that we should obey its will, we are the more likely to do this the less we concern ourselves about the matter, and the more we confine our attention to the things immediately round about us which seem, so to speak, entrusted to us as the natural and legitimate sphere of our activity. I believe a man will get the most useful information on these matters from modern European sources, next to these he will get most from Athens and ancient Rome. Mr Matthew Arnold notwithstanding i do not think he will get anything from jerusalem which he will not find better and more easily elsewhere 1883 wisdom but where shall wisdom be found job chapter 28 verse 12 if the writer of these words meant exactly what he said he had so little wisdom that he might well seek more he should have known that Wisdom spends most of her time crying in the streets and public houses, and he should have gone thither to look for her. It is written, Wisdom crieth without, she uttereth her voice in the streets. She crieth in the chief place of concourse, in the openings of the gates, in the city she uttereth her words. Proverbs chapter 1, verses 20 and 21 If, however, he meant rather, where shall wisdom be regarded this again is not a very sensible question people have had wisdom before them for some time and they may be presumed to be the best judges of their own affairs yet they do not generally show much regard for wisdom we may conclude therefore that they have found her less profitable than by her own estimate she would appear to be this indeed is what one of the wisest men who ever lived the author of the book of ecclesiastes definitely concludes to be the case when he tells his readers that they had better not overdo either their virtue or their wisdom. They must not, on the other hand, overdo their wickedness nor, presumably, their ignorance. Still, the writer evidently thinks that error is safer on the side of too little than of too much. Reflection will show that this must always have been true and must always remain so, for this is the side on which error is both least disastrous and offers most place for repentance he who finds himself inconvenienced by knowing too little can go to the british museum or to the Workingmen's college and learn more but when a thing is once well learnt it is even harder to unlearn than it was to learn it would it be possible to unlearn the art of speech or the arts of reading and writing even if we wished to do so wisdom and knowledge are like a bad reputation more easily won than lost we got on fairly well without knowing that the earth went round the sun we thought the sun went round the earth until we found it made us uncomfortable to think so any longer then we altered our opinion it was not very easy to alter it but it was easier than it would be to alter it back again vestigia nulla retrorsum the earth itself does not pursue its course more steadily than mind does when it has once committed itself and if we could see the movements of the stars in slow time we should probably find that there was much more throb and tremor in detail than we can take note of how i wonder will it be if in our pursuit of knowledge we stumble upon some awkward fact as disturbing for the human race as an inquiry into the state of his own finances may sometimes prove to the individual the pursuit of knowledge can never be anything but a leap in the dark and a leap in the dark is a very uncomfortable thing i have sometimes thought that if the human race ever loses its ascendancy, it will not be through plague famine or cataclysm but by getting to know some little microbe as it were of knowledge which shall get into its system and breed there till it makes an end of us it is well therefore that there should be a substratum of mankind who cannot by any inducement be persuaded to know anything whatever at all and who are resolutely determined to know nothing among us but what the parson tells them and not to be too sure even about that whence then cometh wisdom and where is the place of understanding How does Job solve his problem? Behold the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. The answer is all very well as far as it goes, but it only amounts to saying that wisdom is wisdom. We know no better what the fear of the Lord is than what wisdom is, and we often do not depart from evil simply because we do not know what we are cleaving to is evil. LOVING AND HATING i have often said that there is no true love short of eating and consequent assimilation the embryonic processes are but a long course of eating and assimilation the sperm and the germ-cells or the two elements that go to form the new animal whatever they should be called eat one another up and then the mother assimilates them more or less through mutual interfeeding and interbreeding between her and them but the curious point is that the more profound our love is the less we are conscious of it as love true a nurse tells her child that she would like to eat it but this is only an expression that shows an instinctive recognition of the fact that eating is a mode of or rather the acme of love no nurse loves her child half well enough to want really to eat it put to such proof as this the love of which she is so profoundly as she imagines sentient proves to be but skin deep so with our horses and dogs We think we dote upon them but we do not really love them. What on the other hand can awaken less consciousness of warm affection than an oyster? Who would press an oyster to his heart or pat it and want to kiss it, yet nothing short of its complete absorption into our own being can in the least satisfy us? No merely superficial temporary contact of exterior form to exterior form will serve us. The embrace must be consummate not achieved by a mocking environment of draped and muffled arms that leaves no lasting trace on an organization or consciousness but by an unfolding within the bare and warm bosom of an open mouth a grinding out of all differences of opinion by the sweet persuasion of the jaws and the eloquence of a tongue that now convinces all the more powerfully because it is inarticulate and deals but with the one universal language of a gluttonation then we become made one with what we love Not heart to heart, but protoplasm to protoplasm, and this is far more to the purpose. The proof of love, then, like that of any other pleasant pudding, is in the eating, and tested by this proof, we see that consciousness of love, like all other consciousness, vanishes on becoming intense. While we are yet fully aware of it, we do not love as well as we think we do. When we really mean business and are hungry with affection, we do not know that we are in love, but simply go into the love shop. For so any eating-house should be more fitly called, ask the price, pay our money down, and love till we can either love or pay no longer. And so with hate. When we really hate a thing it makes us sick, and we use this expression to symbolize the utmost hatred of which our nature is capable. But when we know hate, our hatred is in reality mild and inoffensive. I, for example, think I hate all those people whose photographs I see in the shop windows, But I am so conscious of this that I am convinced, in reality, nothing would please me better than to be in the shop windows too. So when I see the universities conferring degrees on anyone, or the learned societies molting the yearly medals as peacocks molt their tails, I am so conscious of disapproval as to feel sure I should like a degree or a medal too if they would only give me one, and hence I conclude that my disapproval is grounded in nothing more serious than a superficial, transient jealousy. THE ROMAN EMPIRE Nothing will ever die so long as it knows what to do under the circumstances—in other words, so long as it knows its business. The Roman Empire must have died of inexperience of some kind. I should think most likely it was puzzled to death by the Christian religion. But the question is not so much how the Roman Empire or any other great thing came to an end—everything must come to an end sometime. is only scientists who wonder that a state should die the interesting question is how did the romans become so great under what circumstances were they born and bred we should watch childhood and school days rather than old age and deathbeds. as i sit writing on the top of a wild beast pen of the amphitheatre of austa i may note for one thing that the romans were not squeamish they had no society for the prevention of cruelty to animals again their ladies did not write in the newspapers fancy Miss Cato reviewing Horace. They had no Francis power Cobbs, no S's, no S's. Yet they seem to have got along quite nicely without these powerful moral engines. The comeliest and most enjoyable races that we know of were the ancient Greeks, the Italians, and the South Sea Islanders, and they have none of them been purists. Italians and Englishmen Italians, and perhaps Frenchmen, consider first whether they like or want to do a thing, and then whether, on the whole, it will do them any harm. Englishmen, and perhaps Germans, consider first whether they ought to like a thing, and often never reach the questions whether they do like it and whether it will hurt. There is much to be said for both systems, but I suppose it is best to combine them as far as possible. On Knowing What Gives Us Pleasure Part 1 one can bring no greater reproach against a man than to say that he does not set sufficient value upon pleasure and there is no greater sign of a fool than the thinking that he can tell at once and easily what it is that pleases him to know this is not easy and how to extend our knowledge of it is the highest and most neglected of all arts and branches of education indeed if we could solve the difficulty of knowing what gives us pleasure if we could find its springs its inception and earliest modus operandi we should have discovered the secret of life and development for the same difficulty has attended the development of every sense from touch onwards and no new sense was ever developed without pains a man had better stick to known and proved pleasures but if he will venture in quest of new ones he should not do so with a light heart one reason we find it so hard to know our own likings is because we are so little accustomed to try We have our likings found for us in respect of by far the greatest number of the matters that concern us thus we have grown all our limbs on the strength of the likings of our ancestors and adopt these without question another reason is that except in mere matters of eating and drinking people do not realize the importance of finding out what it is that gives them pleasure if that is to say they would make themselves as comfortable here as they reasonably can Very few, however, seem to care greatly whether they are comfortable or no. There are some men so ignorant and careless of what gives them pleasure that they cannot be said ever to have been really born as living beings at all. They present some of the phenomena of having been born, they reproduce, in fact, so many of the ideas which we associate with having been born that it is hard not to think of them as living beings, but in spite of all appearances the central idea is wanting at least one half of the misery which meets us daily might be removed or at any rate greatly alleviated if those who suffer by it would think it worth their while to be at any pains to get rid of it that they do not so think is proof that they neither know nor care to know more than in a very languid way what it is that will relieve them the most effectually or in other words that the shoe does not really pinch them so hard as we think it does for when it really pinches as when a man is being flogged he will seek relief by any means in his power so my great namesake said surely the pleasure is as great of being cheated as to cheat and so again i remember to have seen a poem many years ago in punch according to which a certain young lady being discontented at home went out into the world in quest to some burden make or burden bear but which she did not greatly care o oh, misery so long as there was discomfort somewhere it was all right to those however who are desirous of knowing what gives them pleasure but do not quite know how to set about it i have no better advice to give than that they must take the same pains about acquiring this difficult art as about any other and must acquire it in the same way that is by attending to one thing at a time and not being in too great a hurry proficiency is not to be attained here any more than elsewhere by short-cuts or by getting other people to do work that no other than oneself can do above all things it is necessary here as in all other branches of study not to think we know a thing before we do know it To make sure of our ground and be quite certain that we really do like a thing before we say we do. When you cannot decide whether you like a thing or not, nothing is easier than to say so and to hang it up among the uncertainties, or when you know you do not know and are in such doubt as to see no chance of deciding, then you may take one side or the other provisionally and throw yourself into it. This will sometimes make you uncomfortable and you will feel you have taken the wrong side and thus learn that the other side was the right one. Sometimes you will feel you have done right. Anyway, ere long you will know more about it. But there must have been a secret treaty with yourself to the effect that the decision was provisional only. For, after all, the most important first principle in this matter is not the lightly thinking you know what you like till you have made sure of your ground. I was nearly forty before I felt how stupid it was to pretend to know things that I did not know, and I still often catch myself doing so. Not one of my schoolmasters taught me this, but altogether otherwise. Part 2. I should like to like Schumann's music better than I do. I dare say I could make myself like it better if I tried, but I do not like having to try to make myself like things. I like things that make me like them at once, and no trying at all. Part 3. To know whether you are enjoying a piece of music or not, you must see whether you find yourself looking at the advertisements of Pears' soap at the end of the programme. De minimis non curat lex Part 1 Yes, but what is a minimum? Sometimes a maximum is a minimum, and sometimes the other way about. If you know, you know, and if you don't, you don't. Part 2 Yes, but what is a minimum? so increased material weight involves increased moral weight but where does there begin to be any weight at all there is a miracle somewhere at the point where two very large nothings have united to form a very little something part three there is no such complete assimilation as assimilation of rhythm in fact it is in assimilation of rhythm that what we see as assimilation consists When two liquid bodies come together with nearly the same rhythms, as, say, two tumblers of water, differing but very slightly, the two assimilate rapidly, becoming homogeneous throughout. So with wine and water which assimilate, or at any rate form a new homogeneous substance very rapidly. Not so with oil and water. Still, I should like to know whether it would not be possible to have so much water and so little oil, That the water would in time absorb the oil i have not thought about it but it seems as though the maximum de minimis non curat lex the fact that a wrong a contradiction in terms a violation of all our ordinary canons does not matter and should be brushed aside it seems as though this maxim went very low down in the scale of nature as though it were the one principle rendering combination integration and i suppose dissolution disintegration, also possible. For combination of any kind involves contradiction in terms, it involves a self-stultification on the part of one or more things, more or less complete in both of them, for one or both cease to be, and to cease to be is to contradict all one's fundamental axioms or terms. And this is always going on in the mental world as much as in the material. Everything is always changing and stultifying itself more or less completely. There is no permanence of identity so absolute, either in the physical world or in our conception of the word identity, that it is not crossed with the notion of perpetual change which pro tanto destroys identity. Perfect absolute identity is like perfect absolute anything, as near an approach to nothing or nonsense as our minds can grasp. It is, then, in the essence of our conception of identity, that nothing should maintain a perfect identity, there is an element of disintegration in the only conception of integration that we can form. What is it, then, that makes this conflict not only possible and bearable, but even pleasant? What is it that so oils the machinery of our thoughts that things which would otherwise cause intolerable friction and heat produce no jar? surely it is the principle that a very overwhelming majority rides roughshod with impunity over a very small minority that a drop of brandy in a gallon of water is practically no brandy that a dozen maniacs among a hundred thousand people produce no unsettling effect upon our minds that a well-written i will go as an i even though the dot be omitted it seems to me that it is this principle which is embodied in de minimis non curat lex That makes it possible that there should be a majora and a lex to care about them. This is saying in another form that association does not stick to the letter of its bond. Saints Saints are always grumbling because the world will not take them at their own estimate, so they cry out upon this place and upon that, saying it does not know the things belonging to its peace and that it will be too late soon, and that people will be very sorry then that they did not make more of the grumbler whoever he may be inasmuch as he will make it hot for them and pay them out generally all this means put me in a better social and financial position than i now occupy give me more of the good things of this life if not actual money yet authority which is better loved by most men than even money itself to reward me because i am to have such an extraordinary good fortune and high position in the world which is to come when their contemporaries do not see this and tell them that they cannot expect to have it both ways they lose their tempers shake the dust from their feet and go sulking off into the wilderness this is as regards themselves to their followers they say you must not expect to be able to make the best of both worlds the thing is absurd it cannot be done you must choose which you prefer go in for it and leave the other for you cannot have both when a saint complains that people do not know the things belonging to their peace, what he really means is that they do not sufficiently care about the things belonging to his own peace. Prayer, Part 1 Lord, let me know mine end, and the number of my days, that I may be certified how long I have to live. Psalm Chapter 39, verse 5 Of all prayers, this is the insanest that the one who uttered it should have made and retained a reputation as a strong argument in favor of his having been surrounded with courtiers. Lord, let me not know mine end would be better, only it would be praying for what God has already granted us. Lord, let me know A.B.'s end would be bad enough, even though A.B. were Mr. Gladstone, we might hear he was not to die yet. Lord, stop A.B. from knowing my end would be reasonable, if there were any use in praying that A.B. might not be able to do what he never can do. Or can the prayer refer to the other end of life, Lord, let me know my beginning? This again would not always be prudent. The prayer is a silly piece of petulance, and it would have served the maker of it right to have had it granted. A painful and lingering disease followed by death, or ninety a burden to yourself and everyone else, there is not so much to pick and choose between them. Surely I thank thee, O Lord, that thou hast hidden mine end from me, would be better. The sting of death is in foreknowledge of the when and the how. If again he had prayed that he might be able to make his psalms a little more lively and be saved from becoming the bore which he has been to so many generations of sick persons and young children, or that he might find a publisher for them with greater facility, but there is no end to it, the prayer he did pray was about the worst he could have prayed, and the psalmist being the psalmist, naturally prayed it, unless I have misquoted him. Part 2 Prayers are to men as dolls are to children. They are not without use and comfort, but it is not easy to take them very seriously. I dropped saying mine suddenly once, for all without malice, prepense on the night of the 29th of September, 1859, when I went on board the Roman Emperor to sail for New Zealand. I had said them the night before, and doubted not that I was always going to say them as I always had done hitherto. That night, I suppose, the sense of change was so great that it shook them quietly off. I was not then a skeptic. I had got as far as disbelief in infant baptism, but no further. I felt no compunction of conscience, however, about leaving off my morning and evening prayers. Simply I could no longer say them. Part three lead us not into temptation matthew chapter 6 verse 13 for example i am crossing from calais to dover and there is a well-known popular preacher on board say archdeacon ferrar i have my camera in my hand and though the sea is rough the sun is brilliant i see the archdeacon come on board at calais and seat himself upon the upper deck looking as though he had just stepped out of a bandbox Can I be expected to resist the temptation of snapping him? Suppose that, in the train for an hour before reaching Calais, I had said any number of times, lead us not into temptation. Is it likely that the archdeacon would have been made to take some other boat or to stay in Calais, or that I myself, by being delayed on my homeward journey, should have been led into some other temptation, though perhaps smaller? Had I not better snap him and have done with it, Is there enough chance of good result to make it worth while to try the experiment? The general consensus of opinion is that there is not. And as for the praying for strength to resist temptation, granted that if when I saw the archdeacon in the bandbox stage I had immediately prayed for strength, I might have been enabled to put the evil thing from me for a time. How long would this have been likely to last when I saw his face grow saintlier and saintlier, I am an excellent sailor myself but he is not and when i see him there his eyes closed and his head thrown back like a sleeping saint joseph in a shovel hat with a basin beside him can i expect to be saved from snapping him by such a formula as deliver us from evil is it in a photographer's nature to do so when david found himself in the cave with saul he cut off one of saul's coat-tails if he had had a camera and there had been enough light he would have photographed him But would it have been in flesh and blood for him neither to cut off his coat-tail nor to snap him? There is a photographer in every bush, going about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Part 4 Teach me to live that I may dread the grave as little as my bed. This is from the evening hymn which all respectable children are taught. It sounds well, but it is immoral our own death is a premium which we must pay for the far greater benefit we have derived from the fact that so many people have not only lived but also died before us for if the old ones had not in course of time gone there would have been no progress all our civilization is due to the arrangement whereby no man shall live forever and to this huge mass of advantage we must each contribute our might that is to say when our turn comes we too must die The hardship is that interested persons should be able to scare us into thinking the change we call death to be the desperate business which they make it out to be. There is no hardship in having to suffer that change. Bishop Ken however goes too far, undesirable of course. Death must always be to those who are fairly well off, but it is undesirable that any living being should live in habitual indifference to death. The indifference should be kept for worthy occasions, and even then, though death be gladly faced, it is not healthy that it should be faced as though it were a mere undressing and going to bed. End of section 17. Read by Rebecca Nance.